0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and it is a delight to be joined today by Dan Coys, who is a writer, editor, and podcaster at Slate, where his work has been nominated for two National Magazine Awards and a Writers Guild Award. He's the author of How to Be a Family, a memoir of parenting around the world, The World Only Spins Forward with Isaac Butler, an oral history of Tony Kushner's Angels in America, and Facing Future, a book of music criticism and biography. He lives with his family in Arlington, Virginia, and his debut novel is called Vintage Contemporaries. Welcome, Dan.
1: Hey, thank you.
0: Thank you for writing a book that I feel like is a manifesto about the importance of quote-unquote happy books.
1: That was definitely the goal going into it. The book's epigram comes from the jacket copy of my trusty mass market paperback of Laurie colwyn's happy all the time and when i started writing this project my only goal before i knew it was a novel before i knew what i was doing at all my only goal was to write something that made me feel as happy as that book made me feel
0: and i I, it's so funny because i am asked quite often for recommendations for Books that are smart, but that aren't depressing. And I always say Lori Colin. And sad things happen in her book, but the tone is just completely different. And that seems to be a big inspiration for you.
1: Yeah, you know, when I had did an MFA in my 20s, and every single thing that I wrote in that program was fucking depressing as hell. It was, like, dark and intense. And I'd, like... Remember one story I wrote was like a Bonnie and Clyde brother and sister team murdering people in a (laughs) cornfield. And then, maybe not coincidentally, after my MFA, I didn't write any fiction at all for like 15 years. And then when I turned 40 and I had this like midlife creative crisis and was like, wow, I really, I thought I was a fiction writer. I thought I made things up. Why haven't I ever done that? But you know, I had a life and I had kids and I had a job and I was writing nonfiction stuff too. And if I was ever going to, Find a way to fit writing make em ups into my life. It was going to have to be because it really made me, it gave me pleasure to do it. And so that was what got me over the hump.
0: And your protagonist, Emily, did exactly what I did and probably what you did too, which is upon moving to New York City and looking for literary cred, you read every single dark book that you can imagine. Like Bright Lights, Big City was my guide to New York City. <laughs> the
1: idea of landing in New York City. And be like, all right, well, what's this going to be like? Let me read Bright Lights, Big City. And And yeah, most people don't have necessarily have New York lives like that. But yes, (laughs) when when you fancy yourself a literary person, someone who wants to work with writers or work with books in some fashion, that often comes out of that kind of like desperate literary hunger. And it manifests itself in a couple of ways, the way that you describe where you are just, you are looking for any story that might map a future for yourself that is exciting and fun and, um, and, ultima- and, unknow- and seems unknowable when you land there. But also for me, I don't know if it was this way for you, there's just like this incredible hunger for books. I mean, like any fucking book I could get my hands on When I didn't really have a great paycheck and it, in New York, it just seems like they're everywhere. Like people are sending them for free to people and they end up in the strand or there's guys selling them on the street and somehow they just have all these incredible books. And it was like, like moving to New York and seeing all this happen in front of me and not having the money to purchase all of these was like, I was like, you know, it was like being a kid in, in Willy Wonka's factory. And it was like, I was. (laughs) constantly diving off the side of the boat, killing myself to get these things.
0: And certainly for anyone who was working in the publishing industry, the Strand certainly came in handy when your paycheck is very small and you like to buy books. And Did you, you do
1: the thing work. that Emily oh, does in I this? I sure did. Of bringing all the galleys in and swearing to fuck that you are going to take cash this time and not credit, and then you walk out and you just got credit again?
0: absolutely yeah yep. and even just like going to the strand and looking at the galley section was like i'd trade my galleys for new galleys right <laughs> <laughs> which is all i don't do that anymore let's put that up there too
1: right at some and at some point one of the things i wanted to map in this book is at some point you find that you are just as interested in writing but like the fever has broken You are no longer so desperate to get your hands on any book. And instead, you start to become extremely selective about what it is that is entering your eyeballs into your brain.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. This book brought me back to when I wasn't just sent every book, which is like, what a privilege and how exciting. And that still gets a little boring for me now. Maris, Um, what
1: was your first job in publishing?
0: Well, Dan, I worked for a literary agent.
1: Hey, hey, just like our heroine.
0: Just like our heroine. And I think he was a little meaner than Emily's boss. But after a year and a half there, I did go and work as an editorial assistant at Free Press at Simon & Schuster. So I, I feel very related to your protagonist, Emily.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things they tell you when you start writing is that you should just imagine your audience of one. And apparently you are my audience of one in that your experience <laughs> <laughs> maps Emily's experiences. I also worked for a literary agency, not in New York, actually. I, mine was in Washington, DC, it was right after college while I was in grad school doing that MFA. Um, my boss was also different from Emily's insane, like old ancient publishing lady boss. Maybe a little meaner, but also generally better to me than Emily's bosses to her. But I still had that feeling that I'm sure you had that I think so many people knew in publishing had, which was feeling all of a sudden like I was just in way over my head. Like I was suddenly doing these, like the job was such a mix of stuff that I was obviously overqualified for, like putting royalty statements in envelopes and filing. Like, yes, filing. Oh, my God. I would devise revolutionary new filing techniques (laughs) to make sure that the history of this agency was in good hands as if I was like an archivist. But also, all of a sudden I had what felt like the lives and careers and passions of real writers in my hands and I was expected to like give them feedback or recommend the right editor for them or and all of a sudden I had my own projects and I didn't even know what the fuck I was doing. And that mix of like the stultifying and the terrifying seems such a hallmark of this particular industry where people really do get thrown in the deep end, often to their betterment, but not always. And, and I wanted that to happen to Emily and have her have like a a couple of small successes, but also a couple of real frustrating failures early in her career, which I feel like happens to a lot of us.
2: Absolutely. Thrive Market is my go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting it all quickly shipped to my doorstep is a huge time saver. I was so happy to see that they carry my favorite protein bars, as well as Wandering Bear cold brew in a big size. (laughs) As a Thrive Market member, I can save money on every single order. On average, I save over 30% each time, $15 on my last order. On top of the massive savings on each order, Thrive Market has a deals page that changes daily, gives me cash back on so many brands, and they have a price match guarantee. Not only does Thrive Market save me money, but they have also saved me time. I love the filters on their website or app. They have over 70. Whether you're looking for certified gluten-free snacks or non-toxic cleaning essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with the click of a button. I'm diabetic, so I love how many low-carb treats I can find on Thrive Market. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash MarisReview for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com dot com slash Maris review, ThriveMarket dot com slash Maris review. A thing that happens to a lot of
0: us, that happens to Emery, is that a friend of her mother's has a book that she wants to pitch her, and of course, that has happened to many p- people in publishing. But the difference is, it's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Lucy is the stand-in for Laurie, I guess, yeah?
1: Yeah, in a way. Yeah, so Emily, who works at this literary agency, you know, who gets yented, gets hooked up with this college friend of her mother's who lives in New York, who her mother really doesn't know that well anymore, but who was very important to her when they were young women, and who sort of describes her as like this aspiring writer who maybe you can help her. But it turns out that she is... She's a real writer. And I don't mean that in like a t- to be too snarky to the people who do come hat in hand to agents assistance, but in the sense that she has published several novels with a small press where they went nowhere and got zero attention, as so often happens. But she has a certain kind of writerly flair and personal warmth that Emily, it turns out, really needs at that point in her life. And she's slow to understand what is good about the books because she is so wrapped up in her own version of the Bright Lights Big City version of New York City literary writing. But when she does, the, she finds that that's really meaningful to her. And the harder and more complicated her own life gets, the more that the books that she that Lucy writes, which are, you do resemble in a way the books that Laurie Coleman wrote, mean more and more to her and her friendship with Lucy means more and more to her. And I wanted to have that counter example right here in the book, the more I was writing this book and the more I realized what it was about and what it was arguing about writing about happiness and about writing the kinds of books that don't require someone to imagine a dark future for themselves. I wanted to have a character who embodied that. And, and it seemed to me like I might as well just have someone who who embodies that sort of laurie colwyn-esque embrace of of sociability and happiness and joy and love food yeah and food and food because that allows me to put a couple of recipes here and there in this book as well
0: and i just love that only a few months ago vintage partnered with harper perennial to repackage a lot of the laurie colwyn books so so tell me a little bit about the title and the book cover vintage contemporaries
1: way before I even started writing this book I had this idea that it would be very funny to publish a book called vintage contemporaries to have it published by vintage in paperback and have it have the traditional 1988 vintage contemporaries Mm -hmm. design with a you know the little colophon and the justified type across the top with the drop caps but it would just be called vintage contemporaries and I thought god that would be fucking hilarious I had no idea what else what the book would be or what it would entail or what it would mean started with a um,
0: title that's good I
1: really did so I mean long before this anything about this book was a gleam in my eye I had this idea in my head and as I was writing this it came to me that I was writing about kinds of vintage contemporaries in a different way and that I was writing about a group of extremely close friends who were very of their moment, but who felt to one another as if they had known each other forever. And I like that kind of double meaning. But I also like the way that Emily, my protagonist, comes to change the way she thinks about that very specific publishing line. She idealizes that line of books when she comes into book publishing. She dreams as an agent's assistant of placing a book with the editor there. Who's like basically a, bake, a fake Gary Fiske, John, and who and and then as her career goes on, she starts to think differently about what those kinds of books mean and what her own job within the publishing ecosystem should be. Is that the kind of thing that she is actually meant to do, or is she, are her talents better served doing something else and helping writers in a different way? And so when I sold the book to Sarah Stein at Harper, coincidentally Laura Laurie Colwin's now paperback publisher. Oh, Um, I definitely, I still was a little bit stuck in my old mindset. And of course, my first pitch for the cover was like, what if it was just a vintage contemporaries cover? And Sarah was like, well, Dan, for a number of reasons, that's not (laughs) a practical suggestion. For example, we would get sued by random house. But also, it doesn't actually represent what this book is. And so there, her counter offer, which I immediately realized was so much better, was what if we hand this to the designer who has just finished doing our Laurie colwyn reissues which are beautiful and see what she does with it and i said oh yes what a great idea of course i thought of that as well and so the it's not the cover is not exactly an homage to those paperbacks and it's not exactly an homage to the old Laurie colwyn covers but it does have that sort of very warm feel and it's hand drawn and is gives a real mix of contemporary and mid 90s vibes with its little the hint of a Veselka plate and yeah. an actual cigarette and an actual ashtray <laughs> things that you would never see together in the year 2022
0: Absolutely so so in 1991 Emily comes to New York City and meets Emily
1: Another Emily
0: Tell me about Emily and Emily
1: Well, let me just start by quoting Kirkus Reviews on this book. For some reason, both characters are called Emily. I agree that it's confusing, but...
0: You you meant to do that.
1: (laughs) It did. It was an intentional choice. The reason is because I wanted an extremely handy shorthand for the way that when you meet the perfect friend at age 23, you instantly subsume your identity into the joint identity of the two of you. In a way that you don't when you make friends when you're older,
0: and it's so it then becomes so very clear about the pecking order in the relationship. Right when Emily too gets to keep the name, and the protagonist Ben gives by she
1: gives M her name M, who is the which is the name that the pro- actual protagonist of the novel chooses gets chosen for her. Almost instantly upon meeting her instant best friend, Emily, I wanted that friendship to be the center of the novel. And I really wanted to explore the way that friendships are built and consume you in a way, in ways that both help you become the person you're supposed to be and also can hinder you. I wanted to explore the way that those friendships fall apart and break, because that is an experience I have had which is really painful and sucks. And I think a lot of other people have had it. And I feel like I hadn't read about it very much. I didn't have a book that I could think of as like the great friendship breakup novel. And then I wanted to see if there was a way to put them back together when everyone's a little bit older and understands themselves a little bit more and understands the things that they once did wrong in that original friendship. And that seemed moving to me and it seemed a sort of heartening fictionalized version of my own experience in which those broken up friendships have not resulted in the end in wonderful re-comings together but why not imagine that for myself one of the best notes i got from a reader about that friendship something that was really useful to me in sort of reconfiguring how i thought about it throughout the novel was actually from my agent when she read an early draft of this book and she said one thing that you need to understand about women when they are in friendships like this especially when they are like bookish as emily m is that they instantly realize that they are part of a literary pair and they instantly try and figure out which one they are like they instantly understand that they are the characters in the elena ferrante novel or they are the two sisters and little women or they are you know they understand that they're part of a, di- a dyad that has gone back in literary tradition forever and they need to figure out are they which one are they and that kind of self analysis which maybe to me as a 23 year old guy i did not have that level of self awareness it also helped make the friendship and its treatment on the page a lot richer because it forced both of the characters to be Thinking through these issues. Yeah. And it didn't allow them to be blind to that. And that really helped.
0: They are characters in their life as well as characters in your novel. And then a big part of their friendship, of course, is that Emily, as opposed to the protagonist, M, lives in a squat in the East Village, which was very far into M and really intrigued her. And one of my favorite things about the book is M's. And this and like, gradual realization that community matters and that giving back matters and that perhaps the police aren't there just to protect you.
1: You can tell the parts of this book that were written in 2019 or 2020, <laughs> yes. perhaps.
0: Yeah, I
1: I loved the idea of who um, you know, who comes to New York from Wisconsin, from Wausau, Wisconsin after a brief, you know, after a foray at college, and for whom the city evolves over time from being intimidating to feeling like home. I love the idea of her finding a true New York community. And I had been reading about the squats of the Lower East Side and the drama surrounding them in the 90s. I had known a little bit about them, embarrassingly, like so many of us, mostly through the musical Rent but, 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 the idea of these very stormy, but very cohesive communities in which people were living very rough and tumble lives, but uh, but were still applying themselves, their skills and talents and energies towards a very specific collective purpose, one that was inarguably good for them and for their neighborhood and community that were then. Facing this, like, you know, implacable opponent in the city, which in the 90s spent an enormous amount of money and effort evicting people from squats in the Lower East Side and, you know, at one point, sending in waves, you know, sending in waves of police on a tank down 13th Street to clear them out. I found that very moving. And I wanted to show the ways that M, our heroine, and Emily, her best friend, that their paths were diverging. And one way to do that was to show how... Deeply invested em, who doesn't even live in this building, becomes in this community. She signs up for the eviction watch list and is fielding phone calls in her office from people saying that she needs to get down here right away and form a human barricade and she's attending city you know city board zoning variance meetings and then Emily, who is getting deeper and deeper into her own head and her own problems find comes to find living in the squat as a kind of pain in her ass and wishes that this problem could just sort of be erased from every, from all this other shit she has to deal with. So it becomes, you know, a wedge between them while also becoming a thing that deeply influences the person that M is eventually going to become. And it also just gave a a book that sort of by design was a little drama free, a little bit of drama, which also appealed to me as someone who thinks about story and who was writing this book thinking, well, is anything gonna happen? Oh, look, things are happening.
0: (laughs) Yeah, once you put up a barricade, things are happening.
1: Um, When you turn over a car in the middle of the street. When you turn
0: over a car.
1: You got a whole different kind of book happening for a couple of chapters.
0: And then, of course, there's the work drama. We follow, so the protagonist, Emily, goes from the agency to an editorial position at St. Martin's, where her boss... Is a real kind of thing. Well, you tell me? Her boss is a real.
1: He's a real character. He's, he's a big personality, which, as we all know, is a euphemism often used for bosses who are in different ways probably too much for their position and the company that they work at, These sections, so the novel is basically split between sections in the 90s and sections in the 2000s. And so we see Emily very early in her career at a literary agency and then sort of mid-career when she has a baby, she has a husband. She is now sort of a senior editor at St. Martin's working for a guy to whom she, oh, she feels a great amount of personal gratitude for saving her from her earlier work situation, for serving as a kind of tough love mentor for mm-hmm. her. And, and so those second, those later parts of the novel, a lot of what they're about, in addition to re re finding the other Emily are about her figuring out what her role is in this work ecosystem, a different kind of community where people are also all pushing towards similar goals, but where you also have to deal with people who are not, who don't necessarily always have your best interests in mind or don't understand the way that their actions affect others. And so she's got this boss who's just, you know, a yeller and a shouter, and maybe he's, maybe he's a little ribald at times and he sure likes a dirty joke and, uh, But it's 2005, you know, and that's how it was. That's how it was. That's how a lot of bosses were. That was in a lot of ways. I think what some people thought they were getting into arts and culture for was to be working with these kinds of geniuses who did not play by the rules of a boring, stultifying law office or, you know, financial services firm. You were there to work with genius. And so, if a genius was in the office next to you, yelling at you, that was both the price you had to pay and a kind of opportunity to learn how real art was made.
0: And And, to prove that you're tough, that that you can handle it.
1: And, you know, and watching, I mean, I guess this is another way that this book is affected by the years in which I was writing it, but watching women my age and my life particular observe the me too revolution and have difficult sort of struggles with themselves about how they viewed their own formative years in their industries whether creative or not creative how they viewed the bosses who treated them in certain ways and how they viewed their own pride in surviving those experiences was really eye-opening for me. And I mean, I had versions of that. I worked for a boss so famously abusive that there have been news stories about him in the years since, but, but I think for women in particular, it seems like there was a real, it was really eye-opening for many of them to recast their own experience in a different way and to decide how they wanted to view the person they once were, whether they were willing to view themselves not only as a, a brave and smart person who got through difficulty, but as an actual kind of victim of certain kinds of behavior. That's a hard choice to make to view yourself that way if you haven't, if you've been, if you've been specifically trying not to do that for years. And so Emily has to start to rethink what her early years meant. And then also to think, well, if I'm a leader in this organization, I understand finally something that is happening that shouldn't be happening, what am I gonna do about it?
0: Yeah, even just the idea of, like there's a part in the book where a particularly lascivious agent is going to sit next to a young woman and she very gently suggests that she, that Sarah sit across from the agent instead. Like, these are the kinds of things she already knows to do.
1: Right. She's built her professional life and persona in a way around being the buffer to these men. And, she, and she's just assumed, well, this is the, a role I play. And deciding whether she should continue playing that role or do something different is a big deal in her career and life.
0: And I think that's, I think that's so interesting in terms of not even being, recasting yourself as a victim, but recasting yourself as an enabler is devastating.
1: Yeah, and a lot, I mean, that is part of the book that definitely, uh, that comes from my own experience and the experience of many people of my generation. You know, I worked for this one abusive boss. I also worked for plenty of bosses who were basically fine for the times, but nevertheless, like, a little. When you think back on them now, and I have definitely spent my entire working life being like the good employee and, and rethinking, well, what are the things that I did in those days with this particular producer or this particular editor in chief that made my life easier and my relationship with those people better, but didn't at all help the people you know the person in the cubicle next to me and that's uh, that's bracing to think about the ways that you have enabled that kind of behavior
0: yes indeed yeah, and i wish we could talk more but time is running out before we go please recommend some books for us and there are plenty of good books in your book so
1: my book is full of books when you write about a reader a real gift that gives you as an author is that there's always something interesting going on in that person's head on a separate plane from What's actually happening in her life. And so you get a lot of chances to have ideas bounce off one another, to have her encounter something in a book that is meaningful to her and helps her reframe what what is going on. And so I want to recommend a couple of the books that Emily is reading over the course of this novel. All of them, of course, Vintage contemporaries. There, she has a wonderful experience reading a copy of Late Comers by Anita Bruckner. I had not read any Bruckner at all. Author who I know is absolutely beloved by a number of writers I love, including Ruman Alam, who's a huge a Bruckner head. Yes. Um, and Late Comers is just an absolutely beautiful and quietly devastating social. Tragic comedy, I would say, that includes some of the most funny and delicate writing I've ever encountered. I want to recommend a book that was really important to me when vintage contemporaries were the ne plus ultra of high literary style for me. And that is Susanna Kaysen's novel, Asa As I Knew Him. Susanna Kaysen, of course, is the author of Girl Interrupted, her memoir turned Angelina Jolie role. Um, but she also has written a couple of beautiful novels which were published in early vintage contemporary editions with very arresting covers and one of them asa as i knew him is a great tragic romance full of like really written in the kind of high 90s style i associate with those early vintage contemporaries like crystalline prose and and a truly like a a unerring eye for detail and a self-lacerating wit and and reading that book i remember when i was 23 and being like oh my god a voice can sound like that in a novel was really quite revelatory to me and then you know i'm gonna recommend bright lights big city it's it was the first book that vintage contemporaries ever published it was the showcase it was part of the initial launch of five or six titles but it it was the big ticket book it was the one that made a huge splash The cover that it has an iconic cover of a guy standing in like three quarters profile facing away from us with the twin towers in the distance and the Odeon restaurant on the left. It is for all of its obvious flaws now and for all of the ways it is, it is so evidently a product of its time so much so that it almost feels more like a snapshot than a book. It is still incredibly propulsive and unexpectedly funny and also the, probably the best portrait we will ever get of working in the New Yorker's fact-checking department. It is, it's a truly a remarkable book, even for all the ways now that I wince reading it and also wince thinking about the person I was when I once read it and thought that that was going to be my New York life. But wow, that book still really cooks.
0: I had to go back and reread it. Yeah. Dan Coise, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Maris. Thank you for reading the book. And, yeah. uh, and I'm glad that I have put your life story on paper.
2: <laughs> thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.